And just as you turn there, I invite you also to just turn with me in a, just to, to come in an, an attitude of, of humility and, and need to the Lord, um, that we might hear, that we might understand his word, that he might feed us through his word. And I think this chapter is, uh, as always, is very relevant and timely and uh, amazing, frankly, if you consider how long ago uh, this was written. Uh, as we come to chapter 7, we do have a shift in style uh, from what we've been used to here with, uh, with Ecclesiastes. Uh, we now come to a series of Proverbs given to us back to back. He's used Proverbs throughout already, various Proverbs at different times, but now he gives us a whole bunch of them in, in quick succession, uh, all instructing us about this matter of wisdom. And so we're going to read uh, verses 1 to 14 and cover those today. So Ecclesiastes 7, 1 to 14. A good name is better than precious ointment and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for angry, anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. So Solomon has been proclaiming throughout Ecclesiastes so far the vanity of really all things and the fleeting nature of life under the sun. Um, We've seen already that even the good things in life like wisdom, have their limitations. Uh, Wisdom is not going to solve all mysteries or lead to all understanding or fix every problem, nor is wisdom in and of itself going to solve or or, or serve as any valid ultimate purpose to life. And yet, as we've said before, this doesn't mean that wisdom is therefore of absolutely no use whatsoever. This doesn't mean that it should be thrown out. Uh, Solomon does not hold to either extreme here. Things like wisdom and toil, they have limitations. They can be viewed and engaged in wrongly, uh, but it doesn't mean they're therefore to be disposed or that they're somehow of no use. In chapter 7, then, he begins to 
uh, take up some practical instruction about wisdom, and he's commending this wisdom to us. Uh, There's a a man by the name of Benjamin Shaw who wrote a commentary on Ecclesiastes, and and he writes this about chapter 7. I think it's helpful. He says, Solomon has already established his foundation. Live your brief life in the fear of God, enjoying the blessings of this life as God gives you the opportunity and the ability to do so. So I think that's really just what we've been talking about throughout Ecclesiastes. Uh, And then he says this, now he begins to give practical advice, setting out what a life lived in the fear of God looks like. And so here again, we are given a series of Proverbs that instruct us in wisdom and what it means to live in the fear of God. And so whenever we have a list of Proverbs like this, it can sometimes be difficult to know how each one relates to another. Sometimes it's obvious. Sometimes one that appears after the other seem completely unrelated. Um, So the same thing, it can be a little bit difficult at times in this passage, but uh, for the sake of an outline and for the sake of a sermon, I'm grouping these into three sections, three uh, loose categories or headings. And the first one is wisdom, sorrow, and seriousness. Wisdom, sorrow, and seriousness. And we see this uh, verses one to six. And in these first six verses of chapter seven, Uh, We're told, we we see that a wise person will face sorrow head on. A wise person lives with a certain gravitas, a certain weightiness about them. They're not living life flippantly. And so let's look at these verses. uh, Verse 1 begins, a good name is better than precious ointment. So this this starts out... um, positively enough, uh, commending to us a good character over precious ointment or oil, likely uh, perfume. Uh, So he's saying that being a person of substance, a person of godliness, having a good name, this should be uh, sought over against uh, life's good things, life's luxuries, something like precious ointment, precious perfume, other... um, luxurious items Uh, clearly the to be a person of substance to have a good name is better it's more important it's it's more significant this is what wisdom is telling us to have a good character is better than fancy stuff but the second half of the verse that's fairly straightforward i suppose the second half of the verse seems to get pretty dark and it's a little bit difficult to know how it relates to the previous line, the first line. So often if you have a, a proverb, um, you'll have two lines making up one proverb, and the two lines are related to each other. Sometimes the second line is, is uh, the opposite of the first line. Sometimes the second line is, is just explaining the first line, or it's kind of restating the same thing in another way. Uh, This one, it's a little bit difficult at first. This one kind of jumps out at you. So a good name is better than precious ointment and the day of death is better than the day of birth. So this seems very typical of Ecclesiastes in one sense uh, to just bring us right back to considering the matter of death and giving us a difficult statement like the day of death being better than the day of birth. 
So again, it's difficult to know how do these things fit together, but I would say that most likely what he is saying is that one's good name really needs to be verified at death. That a true reflection of who a person is isn't really known until they're dead and gone. So there's a certain irony brought in here. Obviously, the birth of a child is exciting. Solomon's not suggesting otherwise. But I think what he's getting at is that much is left undetermined the day of one's birth. We yet have no idea who this child will be, what kind of person he or she will turn out to be. Of course, some start terribly in life, but then end really well. Others, it's the opposite. They seem to start out well, and then they end really bad, and there's everything in between. People who are up and down and so on. So again, I think there's a bit of irony here. A good name is worth pursuing. It's a good thing, but we really can't make the final verdict on it until that person is dead and gone and the whole of their life can be examined. I remember um, John MacArthur saying that he was admonished over and over by his father to finish well. Constantly told to finish well as his dad watched other ministers flame out and, 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 and sell out the Lord and, and, and good doctrine. I remember when they're celebrating, I think it was his 40th year of ministry. Now he's done 50. Uh, but I've heard him say numerous times when people ask him, what do you think the you know, legacy of your ministry will be? I mean, ha, what do you say to that? But he, his answer was, um, we, 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 we can't know yet. Uh, the final verdict is not in. He's got many years under his belt, and yet he acknowledged until he's dead, we can't really know that he could yet, you know, if he were to yet go off the rails, uh, that would tarnish, obviously, whatever the, the good that he has done. And so that's this, this idea that Solomon is getting at. Having raised this issue of death, Solomon stays here for a little bit and continues to give us more wisdom that can be gleaned from considering this subject. Verse 2, it is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter. For by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. So these, vice, these verses hit us, they strike us, they make us stop because of our natural pref. They seem odd because we have this natural preference to be in the house of feasting, to be celebrating, to be in the house of mirth. If I just asked what you would hope would, you would you know, experience this afternoon, very few of you would jump to, I hope it's a time of mourning. We all just want to be able to enjoy our day, enjoy our afternoon. And so these verses hit us here. And they tell us there is actually more to be gained in sorrow and mourning. In Solomon's day, final goodbyes when somebody dies and this time of mourning, a funeral, if you will, took place at one's house. And thus the reference to the house of mourning. It's essentially talking about the funeral, the place where people are mourning death specifically. And the reason he says this is better than feasting is that this, death that is, is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. 
The living are going to learn something as they draw near to consider the death of somebody they knew. Obviously, we know many people will just try to numb themselves through that process. Just try to endure this time, not think too much about it. In our day, we like to celebrate life instead of consider the fact that this person is dead. But generally, people are going to give some consideration, possibly very deep consideration, to their own mortality, to the reality of the fact that their own time will eventually run out. This is the end of all mankind. It's inescapably true. And so there's much to be gained and learned in considering this. By contrast, the house of feasting, while by no means being a bad thing in and of itself, right? We remember Ecclesiastes, he has commended to us. It is good to receive the food that God has given us to enjoy these good things of life, such as we are able. There's nothing wrong with this. But the house of feasting typically isn't where these deep life lessons are learned. If anything, troubles can be forgotten. Life's vaporous nature also lost sight of in such moments. Sorrow, however, can drive us to much gain and to much wisdom. It sort of forces the issue. And so it is therefore better than temporary laughter that just is here one moment and gone the next, fades away, disappears, it's gone. But sorrow today can result in gladness, joy even tomorrow, as it results in serious contemplation that can produce good fruit in the end. When Solomon talks like this, when he says these things, these are meant to be a little bit punchy and to hit us. He's not denying here that the pain is real. It's not wrong that you would hope to be able to go home and enjoy your lunch or your supper this evening. He isn't denying the pain is real, but he's speaking of how important life lessons, things that can truly shape you for the better and make you stronger, often come through trial. And they are therefore better. They're more useful in that sense over against just a lighthearted, momentary laugh. And so scripture says the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Uh, The fool, by contrast to the wise, refuses to stare death in the face and learn from it. Refuses, doesn't want any part of any type of sorrow. Doesn't want to face it. Seeks instead amusement entertainment, celebration. Just got to keep that going. Despising any sorrow. Doesn't want to face it. Doesn't want to learn from it. Again, I think this all lands fairly square today. Uh, We live in a society, in a world that tries very hard to avoid the topic of death. Uh, We are people that are amused at every turn. Uh, We we all have experienced this, I'm sure. We have many devices and different things that are aimed at providing you amusement at all times of the day. 
this matter of, of death over the last 15 months, um, the world really, our society has had something of a, a death scare. It has been greatly exaggerated, but it has been there. And there has been a, a fear of it. And as we've seen, a lot of people have come completely unhinged from reality. Or perhaps they already were, and this has just exposed it. But people do not, will not face just the slightest possibility of death. So much so that they're willing to just hand over important liberties in order for possible protection from this small chance, extra chance of death. As if this is some new intrusion into humanity, this possibility of dying. Many have really crumbled under the weight of this. We know drug overdoses are way up, depression, suicide rates all up across the world. There is, I think, a sense in which we are in a house of mourning. There's a consideration of death. It's placed before us as something of a real possibility. And yet many would still just run from it. But I would also add that if this is true, that we are being forced as a society, people are being forced to face something of death, then there will also be opportunities for many people to learn. And there will be and there are gospel opportunities. If indeed there are some amongst the living who will take this to heart who will lay this to heart, that this is the end of all mankind. And so we should take heart and be encouraged by this and even emboldened in witness. I've said before, we've seen as we've gone through Ecclesiastes, that an important part of wisdom is coming to terms with the reality of death. This is a major theme in this book. It's not just in this book, of course, uh, it's all throughout the scriptures. It's Psalm 90, verse 12. So teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. A man named David Gibson wrote a book on Ecclesiastes and he subtitled it, or he titled it, uh, Living Life Backwards. And he did that for this very reason. Uh, when we face the reality of death and are prepared for death, we can then begin to live the rest of our lives rightly, freely, wisely, and in the fear of the Lord. Ecclesiastes keeps putting before us this enemy that is death. God's word reveals over and over that after man dies, we will stand before God for judgment. It is appointed for man once to die, and after that comes judgment. Hebrews 9.27 says, and this, of course, is bad news for sinners, this judgment. And Ecclesiastes, likewise, speaks of judgment. Chapter 3, verse 17, he talked about God judging mankind. Uh, later on, he's going to continue on as we go and towards the end of the book to remind us of God's judgment as well. And this judgment is ultimately bad news for sinners. It's bad news for idolaters, for liars, for thieves, for lovers of money. For those who covet, for those who would hate other people, for murderers, for the greedy, for tyrants, but also 
for those who disobey parents, for all who have not loved God with all their heart and soul. Again, in other words, it's bad news for all of mankind. In chapter 7, verse 20 even, as we'll see next week, surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does, who does good and never sins. God will judge mankind for every idle word and every evil thought. He knows all and is himself perfect, perfect, and it is his law is a reflection of his own perfection, and that's the standard by which he will judge mankind. Not only, of course, is God the judge, but he has also provided the way of salvation. He has provided the way to be ready, to be prepared for that moment of death, to escape God's righteous wrath and judgment for your sin. He has sent his son, Jesus Christ, to there is salvation through his blood. The Lord Jesus alone has borne the sins of all who trust in him, all who turn to him in faith by taking upon himself the sins of his people and dying in their place, receiving God's wrathful judgment and satisfying it. And he arose on the third day victorious over sin. And so God's justice is satisfied for all who trust in Christ. There's assurance of pardon. And so if we would learn from the house of mourning, we would see that we too will die and then we will stand before God for judgment. We will answer for all of your sins. Forget for a moment the sins of all those around us that trouble your soul for your own sins. And there is one way of escaping God's condemnation, one way of escaping his eternal wrath poured out on you in hell for your sins. It is by placing your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The good news is that there is salvation in Christ Jesus. And the Bible says the response to this is to Confess your sin, repent of your sin, acknowledge it before God, and then place your faith in Jesus Christ. Trust in him, rest in him. That all your hope is that Christ saves sinners. That his righteousness is enough to, to make you righteous, to present you righteous before God. This is how we prepare ourselves for death. Being reconciled to God. So Paul or Paul Solomon continues in verse 5 looking at the matter of rebuke. He says it is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. So in in many ways carries on this theme from verses 1 to 4. Uh, the fool prefers a lightheartedness of of just song and laughter with it. Something that is just kind of enjoyable in the moment, but of no lasting significance. He compares them to thorns that burn up quickly. But if you burn thorns, they burn up and then nothing. They're not much use for anything. They don't make for a great fire. You don't cook over them. There's little effect, similar to the fool's song and the lighthearted moment of laughter. It is better, he says, to hear rebuke than this. Once again, 
Nobody wants to hear rebuke. In our human nature, we don't want to hear that. Again, you'd rather have a fun laugh, laughing moment than have someone pull you aside and call you out on something. This is, again, human nature. And Solomon's appealing to this, to put this starkly before us. Better is rebuke. Over and over, the scriptures speak of this importance of receiving correction, that this is what the wise person is able to do. It requires a certain measure of humility, a certain self-understanding of your own sinfulness and weakness and need for help and correction from others. So notice that the wise person throughout these verses has a certain seriousness and thoughtfulness about them. Uh, This just doesn't mean, this isn't saying that they never laugh, that they don't know how to laugh, that laughter is necessarily evil. But it does mean that the wise person doesn't live for lighthearted frivolity. It's always interesting. I remember, uh, if if you're familiar with Martin Lloyd-Jones, the old preacher from, died in 1981 in England. He was a very, strikes me as a very serious man. And you hear his preaching and you hear of their church services. And I remember his daughter saying that there was a sense of awe and seriousness as the service was happening. He, he, he understood the majesty of God. And he was obviously very serious and intense uh, and sharp. And you might think he, that's all he ever knew. But then you hear testimony from his, I remember hearing testimony from his grandchildren and their stories and their memories. They remember that side of him, but they remember much more. Sitting on his knee, watching wrestling of all things and laughing with their grandfather. By no means was he just light and airy and flippant about life. He was not a frivolous man. He was a wise man. Wise knows seriousness and is thoughtful. Considers life as it truly is. The second grouping of Proverbs here, verses 7 to 10. I'm just giving out the heading, wisdom, patience, and perseverance. Wisdom, patience, and perseverance. Again, it's a little bit hard to know how... um, Connected, all of these verses in 7 to 10 should be, or do you just view them as separate Proverbs? They certainly, these ones can stand on their own. Um, but it might be that these ones are all referring to our engagement in and with society in general. So verse 7 says, Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. This is a warning about the temptation to abuse power and how giving in to this to oppress or to extort another will lead to further corruption of the heart and will drive away whatever wisdom one has. I think we can see truthfulness of this in our own time. If we take verses 8 and 9 with it, And it's probably suggesting that the reason men oppress or extort others is to try to take the shortcut. Uh, You can get what you want more quickly. You can have it all now if you extort or if you oppress or receive a bribe. 
You can get ahead in life and get there faster. Thus, the admonition to patience follows. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. So again, this could be saying to those in authority to exercise patience, to not assert one's own self-interest, to be patient, to see through a plan without uh, illicit shortcuts. But of course, this proverb also stands on its own. Uh, Following through on matters is much harder, much more difficult than just starting something. And patience is a virtue, whereas pride is a vice, a sin. In verse 9, he goes on, Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Once again, this kind of admonition is found throughout the Scriptures, throughout the book of Proverbs, uh, in the New Testament as well. And we need to hear these. Anger, generally speaking, and certainly quickness to anger, is the trait of the fool. He tells us here, it lodges, it finds home, it finds rest. It's resting place in the heart of a fool. There is a time and place, of course, for Christians to be angry, but we still must hear this caution against getting there too quickly or being characterized by anger. And of course, we must admit much of the time our anger is simply in no sense righteous. But even when it is, even when our cause is just, this still presents caution. If you are one who is just easily driven to anger, or if anger is your constant emotion, or if you just go from zero to furious really, really quick in an instant, almost involuntarily, this is again mark of folly. Quickness to anger is evidence of lack of self-control. There are many things in the world that make us angry. Some of it is worthy of anger, even, in one sense. But still, hear the scriptures which warn about quickness to anger. That warn about having it lodged, finding rest in your heart. If you consider the Lord Jesus in his earthly life, nobody had more reason than him to be angry. No one was treated worse. The perfect man, every time somebody sinned against him, it was a, a gross violation. It was unjust. And yet by no means was Jesus quick to anger or characterized by it. We could say the same with the apostles, obviously still sinful men, but endured great injustice and hostility and were not characterized by anger. And then verse 10 is a verse that maybe we could camp on for quite some time. It says, Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Longing for the good old days is not a trait of the wise, according to Scripture. 
according to what we just read. There's a tendency, goes back to the time of Solomon and probably much further than Solomon, to look back at a previous age with longing and perhaps some self-pity and despair about the present. These could be days of our own lives, just, just earlier days when life was a little simpler and easier. Or it could be a former age and period of history to which we wish we could return. If we could just back up to that point, this would all be better. This doesn't really give reasons here as to why this is unwise. It just says that such thinking isn't coming from a place of wisdom. I think we can consider and assert some possible reasons why God's word would tell us that this is not wisdom. For one thing, as many have noted, there's a tendency to just overlook or downplay the trials and difficulties of former times. I don't know what time period of history you look back at as maybe the good old days. I often just think back to the 40s, they interest me. This greatest generation, as they're often called, that went off to war and defeated the Nazi war machine in Imperial Japan. This was a great era. I enjoy studying it. It's interesting. It's fascinating to me. Sometimes I think it would be nice to have lived back then. But of course, there were tremendous issues, not the least of which was war. <laughs> We can do this with an age of church history as well. Maybe there were good things. And then you remember, they didn't even have running water. Most people died very young. So we often downplay the trials of former times, former ages, even the good old days of our own lives, maybe simpler times. You remember back to that point, it's not like you had all this time on your hands or had zero stress. You were stressed. They were just about maybe sillier things. Another possible reason God's word is telling us this is because to live longing for some date that is in the past hinders one's life in the present. You simply cannot go back. As we'll see in a moment, it's it's gone. It's over. We cannot return. We cannot go back. To wring your hands about this will produce nothing helpful to you. It will not be productive. It will be, in fact, unwise, as he's saying here. God, being sovereign, has orchestrated things such that you are living now, here and now. And what's past is gone. It's past. You cannot go back. We cannot just wish ourselves back there or bring that forward into the present. And being overly sentimental about it, dwelling on it, it will hinder, it does hinder life in the present. There are all kinds of different things that could vex your soul right now. Living in this present moment in this day in this province in this country every week it seems the things that go on in parliament get worse and worse it's bad news there's been a lot of not good news come out of parliament in the month of june 
They continue to uphold the right to murder children. I think that obviously should be abolished altogether. But they won't even say that sex-selective abortion is wrong. They overwhelmingly voted down such a thing. All kinds of legislation that bodes ill, frankly, for our country. That produces frustrations over against all the other stuff that's gone on for the last 15, 16 months. Internet censorship. Hate speech laws coming back. Clamping down on dissenting voices. Free expression being taken away. All of this is jarring. It is upsetting. It affects you and I and Will and our children and so on. We're not really allowed to come and go as we used to be able to. Just traveling to another province, can we? We've got to look it up, will we? What will people think? They'll see our license plate. We can't leave the country unless we can quarantine when we get home, but it might be in a hotel, jail. There's a friend of ours, a friend of ours, a pastor, right now in jail in this country for doing exactly what we are doing right now. You consider that? For this very thing, meeting outside with his church. No more dangerous than what we're doing now. It's easy for us. And there's a thousand other reasons why we might long for a former time. Look back and say, man, so many reasons we might wring our hands and God's word is telling us it is not from wisdom that you would say that, that you would long for the good old days. It's not going to help. This does not mean that everything's all good, that we just have to pretend, oh, everything's fine, I love this. It doesn't mean there weren't objectively better days in the past but we simply cannot go backwards our call is to do the best we can now to live by faith to trust our God and to serve him in these days the days that he has given to us as the one who is sovereign over all of this I would encourage you, one practical thing to do is to really seek to build up your doctrine of God, your understanding of who God is, the God that you worship. That you might be further confident and certain of his majesty and of his faithfulness and of his promise-keeping ways, that he is able to keep you, that he will deliver you safely into his eternal kingdom. Whatever might happen on these days of earth. Because if you just sit here wringing your hands about what could have been or you wish was or what used to be, it's not going to help you in days ahead. Set your hope on things that are above and hold loosely to the things of this world. And in the meantime, as we've seen, continue to receive the good things God has given you as he gives them to you, as you have opportunity, as gifts from him.
Let's look at verse 11. It says, Wisdom is good with an inheritance and advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Solomon has warned about the vanity of dying with a whole bunch of stuff only to then hand it off to someone and who knows who they'll be or whether or not they'll be wise with it at all or just throw it all away. But here he shows us that an inheritance is not a bad thing in and of itself. In fact, when the successor receives an inheritance and possesses wisdom, it is said to be a huge advantage in life. It's a good thing. It is indeed a privilege, but it is not a bad thing. It is not one to be despised. It's a good thing to receive an inheritance and possess wisdom. In verse 12, he speaks of wisdom being similar to uh, money in that both offer a measure of safety and protection in life. Along with knowledge, wisdom preserves a person. The wise person is less likely to make foolish decisions that will get him or her in unnecessary trouble or lead to an untimely demise. Of course, we know wisdom does not guarantee long life or prosperity. Ecclesiastes, I trust, has made this sufficiently clear to us, and we understand this. And yet there's no denying that it does have practical help to mankind. So we see wisdom, patience, and preservation. And in the third category here, verses 13 and 14, wisdom, sovereignty, and submission. The chapter now turns explicitly its focus to God. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? Now, this is not a new concept, a new teaching in Ecclesiastes. He has said the same thing already a couple of times. Back in chapter 1, verse 15, and in chapter 3, verse 14, where he says, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people may fear before him. So when he says in verse 13, consider the work of God who can make straight what he has made crooked, it is a poetic way of declaring God's sovereignty. That if he... If he bends something, you're not going to get it unbent. When he decides to act and do something, that is the way it is. So we're reminded again that much of our lives, so often, the things that happen to us and occur, our circumstances are really just completely outside of our control, are they not? You remember this, when we, even when we were in chapter 3, looking at the different seasons of life, how often they just come to us, the bad ones and the good, the bad ones. Uh, you know, none of us asked for or desired new viruses or lockdowns or any of this stuff. Various other trials, they often just can't be avoided, such as life. God and his sovereignty has decided it to be this way. We can hit our heads on a wall, but we're not going to unbend what he has bent. But it's not just the bad things, so too with good in life. You happened to meet your spouse. And they happened to agree to marry you. 
Many of us know that couldn't have been all of our own doing. Verse 13 establishes the sovereignty of God. He is the ultimate being. He is the one who is working things toward a particular end. He's doing it in a way that we cannot fully grasp. He's beyond, uh, beyond the things that he has graciously revealed to us. Again, this has been throughout Ecclesiastes. We've seen this. And then verse 14 applies this reality of God's sovereignty. It says, in the day of prosperity, be joyful. Notice, there's nothing wrong with that. You don't have to be guilty. You're enjoying a good day. I have to feel guilty about it. No, in the day of prosperity, be joyful. Paul knew how to abound and how to have nothing, right? Both things. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Human nature will naturally rejoice in prosperity and often revile adversity. We thank God when we win the award, we get the job, when we've climbed to the top, but then we spit upon him when trials come. Where was God when? We get angry. We question God's fairness. But the scripture tells us God has made the one as well as the other. That's an amen. God has made the one as well as the other. And he has done this in such a way that man may not find out anything that will be after him. We cannot predict exactly what is coming. Will tomorrow be prosperity or will it be adversity? How exactly will things play out? We can do our best to be discerning, to know the times, to understand our world. But ultimately, this is God's world and we live in his domain. Once again, we are reminded of God's sovereignty and this text instructs us then implicitly to submit ourselves to this reality. To submit ourselves to God. Our God is God. He not only has given you the days of rejoicing, but also the days of mourning. And for all who are in Christ Jesus, the scriptures have very encouraging things to tell us about going through trial and difficulty. And God's loving discipline of his children. He has made the one as well as the other. God alone knows what tomorrow holds for you. The reason you can rest today, it's good to let go of those troubling things about what may or may not happen tomorrow is because you're in the hands of your creator. You're in the hands of God. No amount of worrying today is going to help tomorrow, be it a good day or a difficult day. But we have promises that God will see you through it, even if it is difficult. Your God will still be with you, brothers and sisters, to walk you through difficult days when they come. And they may be difficult. You may have tough days ahead. 
But as we've seen, even in sorrow, even in the house of mourning, there is wisdom to be found. Your God will not forsake you. Whether days of rejoicing and plenty lie ahead or whether it's adversity, our God has remained faithful throughout time. He cannot deny himself. He cannot not keep his word. He must keep his word. He must keep his promises. His promises, his oaths are sure. They're certain. Christ is a high priest forever. And if you're trusting in him, he's your high priest forever. He will not fail to intercede for his people. No matter what situation we face in life. There's comfort to be found in this. There's so much we do not understand about the Almighty's ways, but He is good, He is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. As Psalm 121.3 says, He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. He's not asleep at the wheel. He is with you, even in the day of adversity, even when it's hard to see, or you don't feel like He's with you. He is with you. It's what His Word declares, is what He's proven over and over to his people. The wise person knows that while there is much that cannot be fully grasped, that this is ultimately God's world and ultimately he is in charge. And rather than fighting against this at every turn when things are not to our liking, this text calls us to quiet our souls before God and trust him. This is wisdom. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that does instruct us about who you are. There's so many things we can't begin to get our heads around about you, about your greatness. There's much we do not understand about this world. We have difficulty so often with very seemingly basic things. Father, we thank you that your word has made declarations to us that are clear, that can be known of your goodness, your faithfulness. That though death awaits us, We can have confidence that we are forgiven and reconciled to you by looking to Christ and by trusting in him. Father, may this give us joy and strength this day. God, I pray that you would ease the troubled waters of our souls for whatever reason we might be troubled. Father, help us to be able to look out at this difficult, uh, the difficulties of our world and not be lost in frustration. May we heed your word and not be people of anger or quick to anger. Give us compassion. Give us patience. Strengthen us, God, for every task that is before us. Give us wisdom this day and in days ahead. Father, we are glad it is, it is, it is good for us to remember that this is your world, that you are God, that you are in control that it's okay that there's much we don't know. Father, even as we seek to study and be wise and be discerning people, help us to rest at the end of the day, not in our full understanding of everything, but in you and the fact that you are good and you have it all and that we are in your hands and that you've promised good to those in Christ. Father, we thank you for this day that we can gather together. Thank you for your many mercies to us. In Jesus' name, amen.